Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Oh, junior church may be dismissed at this time. So go down the hallway, junior church. Ages 3 to second, gro- second grade may go if you would like. They may stay with you if you would like. Whatever you prefer as parents. All right, we are in Isaiah 66, and we're finishing our study of the book of Isaiah today, all 66 chapters. And we have traveled through issues of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Chapter 1 through 5 really uh, dressed down Israel for not being the nation of priests God had intended them to be to the nations. Instead, they were more wicked than the nations. Israel would be judged. They would be exiled to Babylon. This entire book was written over 100 years before that Babylon exile even happened. And uh, we got to part 2 of Isaiah dealing with the return from Babylon. The reality is that in Babylon, Jeremiah would advise Israelis, you're going to be here 70 years at least, so while you're here, make this your home. Babylon's prosperity is your prosperity. Make peace, uh, uh, marry, build houses, have children. But, you know, once you get comfortable and it's time to go back to Jerusalem, which sits in rubble and has become the playground of jackals and wild animals, and uh, who wants to go through all of that? Well, Isaiah then addresses that need to return to Israel for God's promised redemption of of Jerusalem, as well as the basis for that. And we studied the suffering servant, uh, our Savior Jesus Christ, clearly foretold in the book of Isaiah. Um, we uh, We are ending the book with the glorious future for the believing remnant of Israel, that there is a glorious future for them. Uh, Some of this is the eternal state. Some of this is a thousand-year millennial kingdom, uh, according to our best theological understanding of how the end times shakes out, how it it develops. And um, and today's text is going to split treatment, as many of these chapters have, split treatment between the faithful uh, remnant of God versus the unfaithful. And like many of the other texts we read in Isaiah, it's not going to just address Israelis. It's going to address the nations, Gentiles as well. God has a heart for Gentiles that will come through in today's text as well. Now today, as we look at this chapter, it does end, the last two verses end on a really hard note. And you can witness to people and you can share with them, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. That's half of the gospel. Uh, That's the good news. But the good news makes no sense uh, if you don't have the bad news, that there is judgment, that God's judgment is severe. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's quite the picture as we look today at the end of the text at God's judgment as well. Let's read together the chapter in its entirety. We're in Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because I called, when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? She shall, be, uh, shall a nation be brought forth in a, one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause uh, uh, to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoicing with Is- rejoice with Israel and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many." Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord, for I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and on liters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, we thank you for the fact that you will make an end of things and there will be no second battles, that once you declare an end of evil and you establish the uh, eternal state, Father, we thank you that you will reign supreme and we will live in joy. 
Father, we thank you that all of this is your gift by faith in our Savior Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Father, we also recognize that there are those who do not have a relationship with the, with the Messiah, with Jesus. And Father, they have chosen their own way. Uh, they would rather not be bothered with sanctification from sin in this lifetime because they love sin. And Father, their way is going to be a way of eternal judgment. And Lord, as we look at this text, your judgment is severe. Your, your, your justice is severe. And Father, we look at it and we wonder, and, and this text would indicate that we're going to wonder about it even beyond this lifetime. I pray, God, that we would accept your word as truth, not as something that we would fabricate, not as something we would like to, to, to teach or to share, but as something that we teach because it is true. God, I pray that you would guide us through our study. I pray that you would change our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. As we uh, start in our outline today, God is transcendent. That means he's above creation. He's transcendent so that man can do nothing for God. But rather, man should be something for God, and what he should be is humble, contrite, and fearful. Look at verse 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. It's where I rest my feet. What is the house that you would build for me? That's a derogatory question. And what is the place of my rest? The, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The, the opening of Isaiah 66 reminds me of, Isaiah, of, of Psalm chapter 50. God asked a rhetorical question there as well. Uh, he said, if I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world is mine in its fullness. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, God doesn't eat the flesh of bulls. He does not drink the blood of goats. So your offerings to him of goats, of, of bulls, you're not feeding God. That's kind of the point here. And he continues to say, after saying, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't eat these things. I own it all. He goes on to say, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. So God said, if you want to offer something, give me a heart's attitude of thanksgiving. Be thankful and perform your vows to the Most High. Follow through on your commitments. And then he says in verse number 15 of, of Psalm 50, and call upon me in the day of trouble I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So, so God says, here's how this works, Christian. Uh, when you do things for me, you're, you're not fulfilling any needs here. I own it all. I am transcended above everything. I don't eat the flesh of your offerings. I don't drink the blood of your offerings. I don't need anything. If you want to offer something to me, be thankful. But understand this. This is how the relationship works. You're going to have some needs. You're going to have some troubles. You're going to call on me. I'm going to answer you. And then you are going to glorify me for how I answer you. That's just how this relationship is going to work. It's kind of like I had a cat, our first cat at the Graham household uh, brought us mice every once in a while to eat. You know, here you go, master. Here's a mouse for you to eat. And it's like, cat, you don't understand the relationship. I feed you. I don't eat this. <laughs> right? Uh, the cat had it all wrong in his little, you know, peanut-sized brain, but, um, but we can forgive him. But that's what we do to God. Anytime we think that we are so talented that God needs us, 
right? That, that we are so, oh, we are such a catch. Oh, you know, God is so fortunate to have us. No. Or even the, the joy that we have to give towards God's ministry, to think, look at this, I am providing for God's ministry. Uh, God reminds us even in Isaiah 66 that, that um, he has made all these things. In verse 2, he says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So God, you're going to build God a temple in Jerusalem? Uh, understand, where are you going to get the rocks? You're going to get rocks that he made. You're going to overlay it with gold? Where are you going to get the gold? You're going to get it from the earth that he made. This is like the child who goes to his dad's toolbox at Christmas, pulls out a screwdriver, wraps it up as a gift to his dad, and gives it to his dad. And dad's like, I, I recognize this. This is mine. Okay, uh, that's, that's what we do. And so from a human perspective, we are giving tithes and offerings, and it's an act of faith, and so it should be. But there is also a sense in which we are just the boy taking tools from his dad's toolbox to give him as a gift. Uh, this is all God's. Your talents are God's. If you, if you, yeah, I know you went to school or you developed some skills and you, you know how to earn dollars now because of what you have done. God has given you all of that and you are being faithful with a few screwdrivers from the toolbox. And, and so don't mistake your ministry, your service, your tithes, your offerings as if God needs you. It is your privilege to obey him, to fulfill your vows, to fulfill his word, to do these things in fear, knowing that God will provide with or without you. So you cannot help God um, in building him a house. All of your donation materials would be items you found in his creation. What does God look for? In this text, humility is number one. And humility, as I looked up the word, has, to, has a sense of neediness, someone who's in a needy condition. So you approach God recognizing, I am the needy one here. That's number one. Number two is contrite. That means you're broken due to your sin. That's when you're just simply brokenhearted because you know what you've done. And the Bible teaches, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We did not enter this room today to declare we're such wonderful people. I did not enter into ministry because I passed some uh, sin barrier other than the fact that I had not disqualified myself utterly and openly uh, through my sin. Every temptation to do so is there every day of my life. Number three, after being contrite, having this broken uh, heart due to our sin, this brokenness, is fear of God. Uh, those who tremble at his law. Knowing your place, knowing God's place which may not be so hard to do when you get to the end of today's passage and you see the severity of God uh, where it talks about people going out and seeing the bodies of the wicked where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's kind of the high point, the ending point of the prophecy of Isaiah today. Now, in all of this, it is not that God is against having a temple built in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, when Israel returns from this exile, God will want a temple built. And when they delay to build a temple, it makes God angry. I, Haggai chapter 1, God, God uh, is dealing with, with one such time frame. And God, here, here, this is just God's heart when people are stingy and not using the things he has given them faithfully. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God asks. 
Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. That's a wonderful word picture there. Earning wages, putting them in a bag full of holes. Uh, God said, you know, you've lived this way. Do you think there's some reason behind it? Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld dew, and the earth has withheld produce. And I, called, I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So which is it? Does God want them to build a house, or does he not want them to build a house? Today's passage isn't dealing with whether or not Israel should construct a temple It is a heart passage. God says you need to know your place. You need to repent of sin, be contrite. You need to acknowledge God's place and you need to tremble at his word and walk fearfully of him. So keeping this theme in mind and keeping in mind, well, actually look at verse number six today. Um, There's there's gonna be a sound of uproar in verse number six. If you look at this, there's a sound of uproar from the city, a sound from the temple. So where is the sound of uproar coming from? From the temple, The sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. So if there's uproar at the temple as God renders recompense to his enemies, where are his enemies at? They're at the temple. So I'm, I'm approaching this text as if the very ones who God is angry with are the very ones going through all kinds of religious works, religious activities, and their heart is all wrong. They, 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 they do the religious activities, but in their lives, they pursue what they want. They do not fear God. They are not contrite. They are not humble. So look at verse number three. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. You're going to see these pairs. You're going to see an act that I would take to be within Israeli worship, and that's what they're doing. But how is God seeing it? The person who slaughters an ox in sacrifice is like somebody who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. I understand some pagan ritual had that. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. And why is this? I think the next phrase tells us they have chosen their own ways. And their soul delights in their abominations. Their dreams, their aims, their aspirations are all centered on their sin, their willfulness, not on pleasing God Almighty. So verse 4, I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. And again, I say from last week's, the last chapter, That's a good measurement of what you are doing. Is this something that I'm choosing to do? Is this something that God delights in? Not is it okay. Not, oh, do you have a Bible verse that says this is a a sin? Uh, No. Does God delight in what you are about to do? What you are about to say? What you are about to watch? What you are about to ingest? Does he delight in this? That would, be a de- that would be a delightful measure, wouldn't it, for, um, for uh, whether or not you should continue in the activities that you are considering. This is a passage against empty ritualism. 
Uh, ritualism also seeks to manipulate God. If I do the things I'm supposed to do, then God's going to be pleased with me and I'm going to get my way. You do not manipulate God. There is no mechanical way that you can get out of life what you want. God orchestrates a different life for every believer and for his son. He orchestrated rejection and crucifixion. There are martyrs who have eternal reward. He may have called you to that. It's not exactly a health and wealth, name it and claim it kind of an ending to your life, is it, when you die a martyr's death? And yet you are exactly in the center of God's will for your life if he takes you there. I just pray that he give you the strength and the faith to honor him in that hour. Me as well, should it come to that. So, know this. We are not here to be ritualistic. We are here to exalt the name of God and to obey him as a person, the person who created all. We are humble for good reason. <laughs> Humility belongs to us through and through. It does not belong to God the Father. Because God is glorious. He is powerful. He is sovereign. Exaltation belongs to him. This is just the truth. For God to say, oh, no, 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 you're much better than me, would be a lie. There is no one and nothing better than God. For him to diminish that in verbally or any other way would be for God to lie. So humility does not belong to him. Glory belongs to him. This is truth. As we continue here, looking at God, understanding our place, we see that God is going to comfort his remnant. And he's going to do so with promises of avenging them, delivering them with ease, and uh, giving them a, really a life of glorious comfort in many, many ways. Look at verses 5 and 6 first here. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, so understand that these are faithful people, they tremble at God's word, they've suffered for the Lord, they've been cast out by their brothers. And their brothers have said this, and I think this is a mocking let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. In other words, it's some kind of a taunting. Hey, let's see God actually take some actions here and then we'll rejoice with you. And probably the actions are, let's see him deliver us from our enemies. Let's, let's see some pragmatic, successful thing in this lifetime and then we'll rejoice with you. So there's some kind of a mocking here. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. And so uh, we, we look at this and, and we see this contrast. Those who tremble at the word of God versus those who mock. Where is God? It's like the atheist who gets up and says, if there's a God, I defy him to strike me down with lightning right now. Uh, atheists have actually gotten up on stage and done that. And you know what? As far as I know, they've all lived. The sovereign God is not going to get up and move at their bequest. Uh, he will move in his own time and he will be glorified. So there will be an uproar at the temple in verse 6. God judging. Verses 7 through 9 speaks of Israel's renewal as if it were an effortless birth of a son. Look at verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? That's a rhetorical question. I believe the answer there is no, that God is going to go through with this and give a, a glorious birth to Israel. Verses 10 through 14 speak of the satisfying abundance that God will provide for his people. Verse 10 says, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. 
For all you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon the hip and bounce upon the knees. So nursing, being carried on the hips, bounced on the knees. This just sounds like total provision, total delight, all is well. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. God uses verbs like rejoice, consoling, drink deeply, delight, satisfied, comfort as in he will comfort you, flourish, you will flourish. He talks about glorious abundance. He talks about joy. He talks about peace. And there is an irony in this life and in the next. When you get grabby in this life, when you are just grabbing for your own satisfaction and your own happiness, it eludes you. And and that is by God's design. Jesus described it this way in Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. When, when, When you are humbled, when you are obedient, you make serving God your aim. And God not only gives you all things to enjoy in life, he gives you the ability to enjoy all things both in this lifetime and in eternity, as, as, as Israel has seen, uh, they, they earn money to put it in bags with holes, and it just kind of leaked out, and they don't know how, they don't know where. God poetically works in our lives, and, and, and not every hardship is God punishing you, but some are, and that's between you and the Holy Spirit. As you face a hardship, you pray and you ask God to provide, and you say, while I'm asking, Is this related to this sin over here that's been working on my heart? Because if it is, I want to deal with that and get this punishment over quickly. Even in eternity, those who who have lived for the Lord, lived to please Him, there will be eternal delight. And and this passage really speaks of an ultimate thousand-year kingdom, eternal state after that in Jerusalem. But verse 14 does end with a contrast, and it's an uncomfortable contrast. It says at the end of verse 14, and after all this comfort, and he shall show indignation against his enemies. So it's a time of reward for the faithful, but it's also a time of judgment. And so we look at verses 15 through 17. God will judge the wicked. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be, it doesn't say a few, it says many. Jesus Christ said, wide is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be that go thereby. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there be that find it. We are talking about an end times destruction. And we're talking about a destruction of the majority because the majority of humanity has rejected God. As I quoted earlier, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So you have this wage, death. And we're going to read about this death. It's an eternal death. 
where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, and this is where the many go because the many hate the idea of a judgmental God. As soon as you start talking about a God who is moral and he judges you as being immoral, he judges all humanity as being immoral, well, there are just people who reject a judgy God in their terminology. He's judgy. I don't want anything. I hate him. I just hate the concept. I don't even have to meet him to know that I hate him. And so they don't even get to the point of being broken over their sin and looking for a savior. Those who do have a savior, Jesus Christ. The only name given among men whereby you can be saved. And the terms are this. You need to trust him. In a relationship, you need to trust him for salvation. And not just salvation from sin in eternity because there is this notion among people who maybe call themselves Christians and they're like, you know what? I, I trust Jesus for my, I, I trust Jesus to save me in eternity. But until then, I really want him to leave me alone. Uh, you know, I, I want to be saved from sin's consequences in eternity, but I don't want to be saved from sin right now because I kind of like my sin. I got these really cool materialistic sins that center on acquiring money and houses and cars. And I really enjoy that. And so I really just don't want to be bothered by Jesus and sanctification right now. Uh, you know, I've got, I've, got these, I've got these things that I like to watch on my iPhone. These things I like to think about that I know are sin. And you know, I'm not hurting anybody. It's all consensual. The people put it on there by their own consent. I watch it by my own consent. It's just, I really don't want to be bothered with Jesus in this lifetime. I just, I, I just, I just want to be saved then. That, that's not a relationship of salvation. When you recognize that you're a sinner and, and that God judges sin for all of eternity, th there is a sorrow. And you're not going to be perfect the next day, but, but the whole idea of coming to Jesus Christ is to forsake your sin, to repent of sin, and to trust him in salvation. Again, we're not talking perfection. I don't want to mislead you on that. But, but um, um, uh, this passage talks about God uh, slaying and, and, uh, and, and, um, and, and punishing uh, sinners. Look at verse number 17. He says, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens. The gardens are places of worship of fertility gods, false gods. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. I guess eating mice was something that some human being somewhere did in some kind of a pagan worship ritual. Very odd. But um, again, sin will take you in places you never imagined. God will gather the nations and he will bring his faithful remnant from all over the world. And some of them will serve as priests and Levites. And of course, the big question here hiding in this text is, what is the antecedent of them? Is it the Gentiles? Or is it some of the Jews that are being brought back? And surprisingly, the majority of, of, of scholars are saying it's some of the Gentiles will become Levites and priests. Look at this text, verse 22. Let's see. Um, oh, let me, let me finish here. Verse, how did I miss verse 18? Let's just, let's just uh, yeah, let's look at verse 18. Yeah, I, I see where I am. Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow. And I take that to be they're drawing the bow maybe against Israel, that they're enemies. Um, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. So it sounds like God is saying whether they're enemies of Israel, whether they have never heard my name, I'm going to send representatives out to them. 
and they shall declare my glory among the nations. That's the Goyim, that's the Gentiles. And they shall bring all of your brothers from all of the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in liters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. It sounds like the, the, the children of Israel are just going to be coddled and, and shepherded back to their homeland by these, um, by these uh, Gentiles. Says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring a grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And here's the really surprising little nugget in here. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Now the antecedent there to them could be some of the Jews. But if you're a Jew who is a Levite of the tribe of Levi, I'm understanding that you are a Levite. And so the majority of people are thinking maybe it is the case that God will take some of the Gentiles and honor them uh, to let them be Levites and let them be priests in the house of God. Uh, 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 a precedent that would give uh, us an idea that God would do such a thing would be the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. There's three Gentile women who are included in the lineage of our Savior Jesus Christ. And, um, and so maybe such a thing is going to be done yet again. But what we do have is involvement of the nations in any case. They're worshiping, they're serving, they're delighting in Israel. They're going to enjoy Israel together with Israel. And then we have this state again, this term where we have new earth. God will establish a new heaven and a new earth with worship and worshipers. Um, um, and, oh, with worship. And, and worshipers will go out and look on the wicked dead. And, and this is just grisly as you look at it. That worshipers are going to come together and worship and then they're going to go out and look at the wicked dead whose dead bodies will be tormented with worms and fire. So if you look at verses 22 through 24, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out. And look on the dead bodies of the men who had rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And sh they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. To abhor something is to hate something. Uh, it's to loathe or to hate something. And so it says, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now, what is this? These dead bodies with, filled with worms and burning with fire. This could be a post-battle scene. Uh, after a battle, you've got dead bodies and you, uh, in biblical narratives, you'll see they were handled one of two ways. They were left to the birds and the animals and to rot and to decompose. And this is a shameful death. This is a, a death that nobody would want. And, and so it could just be talking about the practical aftermath of a battle. And then other times, you know, you don't want these rotting, stinking corpses around and, and burying them individually is too hard. And so you create a fire. And you just burn the bodies. And so the idea of the worms not dying, the, um, the, the fire not dying, could be talking about a battle, a post-battle scene where you've just got all these dead bodies to dispose of. Um, there is, uh, in fact, turn to Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 11, if you would, please. Uh, you'll, you'll see uh, something like that here. Ezekiel 39. Actually, we'll start in verse number 9. Ezekiel 39, verse 9. This is a, a post-battle scene here. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years. So you've got seven years worth of kindling just from the battle equipment. 
so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down, uh, cut down any of the forests. For they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plunder them, declares the Lord God. Now, I look back at history and I say, when has Israel ever spent seven years burning the weaponry from a battle? I, I don't know of any time in history past that that's happened. But you look at the fact that these are wood implements being used for campfires and burning in the home, and it's like, what battle today would we ever fight with those kind of implements? And uh, I, I, it, it, who knows what the future holds in terms of any dystopian reality, but um, um, who is the wise scientist? Uh, the, Einstein? He's the one who said, I don't know uh, what World War III is going to be fought with, but he said World War IV will have to be fought with sticks and stones. Um, because World War III is going to be so devastating if it ever happens. So it could be that that, I mean, I, I don't have the answers. Um, perhaps it's all metaphor. I, I don't think so, but because it, it mentions the seven years. Again, that could be a complete amount of time, but keep reading because it seems rather specific. This seems to go beyond metaphor to me. Look at verse 11. On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. I will... It will be called the Valley of Hamangog for seven months. The house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on that day. I show my glory, declares the Lord. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of uh, seven months, they will make their search. And when these travelers... Uh, and when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, so you've got a Gentile combatant bone that you find, then you shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried in the valley of Ham and Gog. And so uh, that, that seems like some really specific detail that they're going to cleanse the land of all these defiled bodies that you're going to have people out there with little flags saying, oh, there's a bone, there's a bone. And then you're going to have people come along, yeah, we'll collect these, we'll bury them. I, you know, is that metaphor? It sounds like a specific battle to me. I, I just, um, you know, it sounds like a, a lot of texture, a lot of detail, and, and so I, I would not be one to write that off to metaphor. So as you look at this, uh, we're back in Isaiah, chapter 66, verses 24 and 25. You have that they'll go out and look at the dead bodies of these men who have rebelled against me. Their worm will not die. Their fire not, shall not be quenched. So this could be talking about this is going to be such a pile of bodies, it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. They're going to be burning bodies for a long time. There's going to be decomposing, rotting flesh for a long time because there's going to be such a plethora of enemy combatants. However, it also, the scriptures also allow for this to be an eternal torment for the lost. Listen to Daniel chapter 12, verse number 2. It's the only other passage in the Bible that uses the same Hebrew word, abhorrence that we see where it says, they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Daniel 12, 2 says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This is talking about a resurrection. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. That word contempt is the same word abhorrence. And it's everlasting. So as Isaiah says, there will be an abhorrence to all flesh, and, and, and it sounds like it, it's happening that there's, there's a time of worship, the nation's coming together, but then they go out and they look at these who are suffering in, in some abhorrent way, 
Daniel says that they will be raised to everlasting abhorrence, everlasting loathing. Mark chapter 9, Jesus described hell fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So if they're going to be risen to shame and loathing, who's there to make them ashamed? Who's there to see? Is it that those who worship God will be able to look upon the suffering of the lost for all of eternity? That is a horrific thought to me. If you're a serious Christian and you've ever thought about the judgment of God, you've had to have questions about the severity of God's righteous judgment. It is severe. Eternal suffering. You know, I, I think about the lost and those who don't trust Jesus. I try to help them enjoy their life as much as they can because this is all they got for all of eternity. The Bible says there's no rest in hell. Uh, you know, when you're going through bad things in life, uh, at least sometimes you can go to sleep and be unconscious for eight hours and you even wake up refreshed. Uh, the, the Bible says there is no rest for the wicked. There is no sleep in hell. And, and so if you think about that, and you think about the severity of God, you have to have some questions about God. And, and one of those questions that you don't dare ask, but you maybe have thought is, how can this be righteous? And you wonder. We do not preach and teach the doctrine of hell because we like the doctrine. Uh, this is not something we would fabricate and, and share around our children. Uh, we preach and teach it because it's truth and we share it with our children because it is truth. It is horrific. And, and what this verse indicates to me and makes me wonder is, will we wonder for all of eternity at the severity of God? We will go, we will look. And, um, you know, if, if there is no higher aim that you could have for an unsaved person today than that you would have a conversation to them about their eternal destiny. Just to find out, are you ever interested in talking about eternity from a biblical point of view? However you can word that question in a way that fits your context, are you ever interested in talking about where you go after you die? Just to find out if they have any interest, uh, to know what the Bible says about these things, and then to be ready to lead them. And if you don't know how to lead them, talk to me. We'll get a small study group together, and we'll, we'll um, work through a way that we can have biblical conversations about eternity. Why end the book of Isaiah this way? Well, God's judgment does not leave us with unmitigated fear. There is a Savior. There is hope. But it also doesn't leave us with unmitigated hope. You need this Savior. You need to trust Him as your Savior. If you do not make that decision for yourself, you will be among the many who rejected Him. No, thank you. I want to live for my sin. And I'll worry about eternity when I get there. That's too late. That is rejecting Jesus for this entire lifetime and then thinking you're going to pull something off when it's too late. The Bible says that's not going to happen. So we would end with this final observation. Since the book ends with it, hell is real. That is a warning. These are people in Jerusalem. These are people at the temple. These are people offering sacrifices. These are people who would build buildings for God. But their heart is not right. Their heart is not with God. These are unsaved individuals. Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts, the Bible says he believed, and yet the apostles condemned him because he tried to buy the Holy Spirit with money. And he said, they said, your money perish with you. 
In John's gospel, a group of people started a conversation with Jesus and the narrator said, and they believed on him. They believed something. But then by the end of the conversation, they're picking up stones to kill him. That was not saving belief. They believed some things about Jesus. James says it this way. Do you have faith? The devils also believe, the demons also believe, and they tremble. Doesn't mean they're saved. They just believe some truths about Jesus. Comes down to this. Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? Do you have this relationship with Him? How do you know that you are trusting Him? Because there is an outworking. There is, there is obedience. Notice again in verse number um, 24 how it describes those who are unsaved. It says, They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. If rebelling against God describes your life, that tells you where you stand with Jesus. If, if there is no sanctification, there's no obedience, just none, then your faith is fruitless. And I would say you maybe just believe some things about Jesus, but you don't have a saving belief. You don't have a saving relationship with him. So as we conclude Isaiah 66 today, God is assuring the faithful in Israel that they will be restored as a priesthood to the nations, and the nations will be included. But he also includes this, God will judge the wicked, and he ends on that note. Today, God asked Israel a question. If I made the world and I own everything that's in it, what would be the place that you would build for me? What needs do I have from you? There are no needs. If you, if you want to approach God, here's how you approach him. Humility, contrition, sorrow for sin, and fear. Know your place and acknowledge God's place. I would say this today, tell people the complete gospel, not just that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but God is holy and he judges sin for all of eternity. To take on the good news, to take on the Holy Spirit and conviction for sin and possibly persecution in the name of Jesus, to take all of that on without understanding the bad news, it just is an incomplete gospel. There may have been a generation of Christian preachers who would seem harsh to us today, but we may have a new generation of preachers who conceal the truth from the lost, not wanting to talk about the bad news. Today's text leaves us with no choice. I want to uh, end with a, we'll just sing a cappella here before I have Grant come for the closing hymn. I want to end with a hymn. This is one that I would not choose most Sunday mornings to sing, okay, because it's a little bit on the dark side. But it really fits how Isaiah ends. And so we'll sing it a cappella here. I'll do my best to find the note and lead you through it. If you would sing with me, please. Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go, Spirit, go thy way, some more convenient day, on thee I'll call. Almost persuaded, harvest is past, almost persuaded, Doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad that bitter wail. 
almost but lost. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment just for silent prayer. Heavenly Father, you are creator. You are holy and good. You created mankind in holiness and goodness. You created Adam and Eve, the smartest two human beings to ever walk the face of the earth with perfect brains, unencumbered, 100% usage. And you explained to them the consequence of sin. Yet, Father, they thought they had a chance to dethrone you, to become like you, so that there would be three gods in the universe, Adam, Eve, and yourself. And Father, they chose rebellion. They have passed that sin instinct to all of us. And so here we sit, God. We are all on equal ground. We have all sinned against you. And we all have every reason, Lord, to be contrite, to be sorrowful for our sin, for the people we've hurt, for the way we have disobeyed your word countless times. God, we thank you that you are a loving and merciful God, that you did not cast mankind away, that you gave your son Jesus to be our Savior. It is him who we trust for our salvation, both now and in eternity. God, we pray that we would know victory over sin. God, we know sin's agenda is that of death in our lives, death to our bodies, death to our relationships, death to our walk with you. I pray, Father, that you would cleanse us and that we would walk in Jesus Christ, whom we have believed. Lord, I pray that nobody here would... uh, Let the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as Savior, to have this living relationship with him of faith that actually, Lord, does impact the way we live from day to day in fear toward you and contrition over sin and in humility and neediness. God, I pray each person here would know this relationship, would embrace Jesus as his or her Savior. And Father, not slip into eternity lost forever. God, we thank you for Isaiah. We thank you, Lord, for revealing to us your suffering servant. We thank you, God, for revealing the foundation of our salvation. We thank you, God, for doing it uh, six centuries before he was even born. God, we marvel at your revelation. Bless us to walk with you now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.